This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part three of four of Professor Hanko's series, Our Creedal Heritage. In his work on the history of doctrine, W.T. Shedd makes the observation that as doctrine developed from the time of the apostles to today, that development of doctrine was not an arbitrary thing, but it followed, surprisingly enough, the order of the six loci of dogmatics, of reformed dogmatics, if you would consult, for example, Reverend Herman Huxima's Reformed Dogmatics, you would find that he follows the traditional pattern of systematic theologians and divides the whole of the truth into six loci, or six separate doctrines. The order of them being theology, which is the doctrine of God, Anthropology, the doctrine of man, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. I think he's right in that regard. When the spirit of truth led over the centuries the church into the knowledge of the truth, the Spirit did not follow an arbitrary order of truths to reveal to the church, but followed what has become the six loci of dogmatics. That's a striking thing if you stop to think about it, and I consider that to be an important observation on the part of this particular church historian. The battle over the doctrine of God was fought in the Arian controversy and settled at the Council of Nicaea. The battle of the doctrine of Christ was fought after Nicaea and was settled at the Council of Chalcedon in the truth of the Chalcedonian Creed. In the meantime, the battle in defense of the doctrine of man was being fought particularly in the great Pelagian controversy of the early part of the fifth century, in which Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, was called by God to defend the truth. And it was through the work of Augustine that the doctrine of the creation and fall and total depravity of man was set forth over against the error of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. It was also Augustine who began a discussion of the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And you will find in the writings of Augustine all the truths of sovereign grace, not only total depravity, which was an important starting point for him, but also the doctrines of limited atonement, of irresistible grace, and of the preservation of the saints, and above all and behind it all, the truth of double predestination, election and reprobation. 
But the emphasis in Augustine's thought did not fall in the first place on these latter doctrines, although they're to be found in his writings. And it remained for the reformers to pick up Augustine at that point and develop the doctrines of soteriology. You recall, for example, that the key doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That great doctrine sparked the entire Reformation. And in fact, Lutheran, Luther called it the hinge on which the whole Church of Christ swings. The Reformers were at great pains to point out that their doctrine of soteriology was a development of what Augustine had taught already back in the first half of the fifth century. The trouble was that Augustine's doctrine had been denied and officially repudiated by Rome. That's an ironic thing because Rome claims Augustine as one of its great saints and claims its theology is thoroughly Augustinian. Yet it is not, as the reformers are at pains to point out. If you would examine the decisions of the councils after Augustine's time, which badly compromised the doctrines of salvation by grace alone, you would discover as you read the history that led up to these decisions that the main trouble in the Roman Catholic Church was already that it had committed itself to a doctrine of the meritorious value of good works. It could not rid itself of that notion of merit. And therefore, Augustinianism and Augustine's doctrine of salvation by grace alone was intolerable to the Roman Catholic Church, and it committed itself, as you know, to semi-Pelagianism. It took almost a millennium for the doctrines of sovereign grace to be restored to the church. That was the work of the reformers. The result of it is, if I may follow W.T. Shedd's thought for a moment, that the reformers were concerned with the doctrine of soteriology as it had been taught originally by Augustine, but also by the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and the doctrine of the sacraments and the preaching of the word as the work of the church of Christ. The order was still the order of the six loci of dogmatics. I want you to bear these things in mind as we talk more particularly about the Reformed creeds because they have a lot to do with the nature of the confessions which are ours. It was really John Wycliffe, who lived in the early part of the 15th century, who made the major breakthrough on the doctrine of the church. And I say these things as background for our understanding of the creeds. The Roman Catholic Church had identified the Church of Christ with the institute, the organization 
and identified it more specifically with the Roman Catholic Institute. It had insisted that there is no salvation outside the church, meaning that there is no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Institute. And by the way, Rome still maintains that same doctrine today, in spite of the fact that it, in a gracious gesture of friendship, has begun to call Protestants erring brethren. There is, says Rome, no salvation outside the institute of the Roman Catholic Church. And it defined the church strictly in terms of the institute. It was John Wycliffe, the English pre-reformer from Lutterworth, in whose pulpit I had the privilege of standing, by the way, last summer in June. We had the opportunity to visit his church, and I climbed the steps to the pulpit where he preached to his congregation. Wycliffe insisted that the fundamental doctrine of the church was not that the church is an institution, but that the church is the body of Christ. That was a major breakthrough. That paved the way for the doctrine of predestination. The church is not an institute in which are to be found believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous, godly and ungodly, but the church is the body of Christ. And when in the Apostles' Creed we confess that we believe one holy Catholic church, we make that confession concerning the body of Christ. That body of Christ is the number of the elect whom God has chosen eternally and given to Christ. And Wycliffe, apparently not even that well acquainted with Augustine, emphasized the doctrine of double predestination. So ecclesiology became a crucially important doctrine for the reformers, and it was developed extensively in their writings and finds its way into our creeds. It is exactly because of this same truth that the spirit of truth leads the church into an understanding of the truth along the lines of the six loci of dogmatics that you will find in our Reformed confessions, and for that matter in all of the confessions of the Reformation period, very, very little about eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. The Netherlands Confession, for example, devotes one, its concluding article to that subject, and in treating it is extraordinarily brief. The Heidelberg Catechism mentions it only in passing in connection with some other doctrines two or three times. Why is that? Because the time of the Reformation Martin Luther, to the contrary notwithstanding, was not the time yet for the coming of Christ. It is a striking thing that we live in the age where 
eschatology has become a crucially important subject that has been forced upon the church, as has always been the case in the history of the church, by false doctrine, and particularly in our day by the false doctrines of premillennialism and postmillennialism and reconstructionism. Those heresies have forced the church to examine the scriptures and to develop the doctrine of the last things. That is primarily the work of the church today. And by the way, I consider that in itself to be one of the signs of the nearness of the coming of Christ, that the spirit of truth causes the church to be preoccupied today with the doctrine of the last things. The Reformation was a fertile time for the formation of creeds. There was no other period like it in the entire history of the church. Every branch of the Reformation produced its own creeds, and every country in Europe that was influenced by the Reformation brought forth its own creeds. Let me just mention a few. In Germany, of course, under the influence of the Lutheran Reformation, was the Augsburg Confession, first of all, and then finally the Formula of Concord, which fixed Lutheran doctrine for subsequent centuries. In Switzerland were the two Helvetic Confessions, the latter of which was drawn up almost exclusively by Henrik Bullinger, the great reformer of Switzerland who took Swingley's place when he was killed on the battlefield and who has the noble place in the history of doctrine of being the first covenant theologian. Not Calvin, but Bullinger was the first to develop anything concerning the doctrine of the covenant. In France, there was the French Confession of Faith, very much like our own Confession of Faith, sometimes called the Netherlands Confession. In Ireland were the Irish Articles. In Scotland were the, was the early Scotch Confession of Faith, adopted by the first General Assembly in Scotland in 1559, which met in St. Magdalene's Chapel in Edinburgh under the influence of John Knox. In addition to that was the Helvetic Consensus, although that confession is of a later date, but also the Reformed Confessions, with which we concern ourselves tonight. And next week, the Lord willing, we'll take a long and hard look at those confessions that have become the confessional basis for practically all Presbyterianism, the Westminster Confessions, including the Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, the Longer Catechism, and the so-called Order of Worship. Tonight we concentrate on the Reformed Confessions. The period of the Reformation, I say, was the richest period in the history of the church in the making of confessions. There never was an age like it. There never will be an age like it again. In the course of our discussions over the last two weeks, the question came up once or twice, uh, 
Would it be proper for the church to make a confession in our day? And the answer to that question is, of course, yes. That would be proper. It would be extraordinarily difficult because the church that holds faithfully to the old creeds is very, very small. It would be a creed of a fraction of Christendom and therefore would have no international significance as all the other creeds do. But if such a creed were written in our day, I'm almost certain that the subject of that creed would be the doctrine of the last things, the doctrine of eschatology. And on that doctrine, the church would concentrate its attention. That would be in keeping with the fact that creeds arise out of the life of the church, because we who live in this time, near the end of the ages, live in the growing consciousness of the coming of Christ and the nearness of the end. That means, however, and that's the point I want to stress, that the great creeds of the Reformation, of that rich theological 100 years that followed the Reformation, in which all the major creeds were produced, was an age in which creeds were produced which except for the doctrine of eschatology, are sufficient for the church to Christ comes back. You don't need any other creeds in the area of ecclesiology or even soteriology. The creeds that have come to us through the work of the Spirit of Truth are adequate, sufficient, and the creeds we need today, if we are to be faithful to the truth of the Word of God. It seems to me that the Declaration of Principles, of which we have spoken earlier, is an example of this. At the time of our controversy in 1953 with conditional theology, the Synod of our churches in the year 1950 felt very deeply that although it was under fierce attack by those defending the doctrines of conditional salvation and a conditional covenant, the creeds were adequate. No new creed was needed because the creeds we now had were sufficient to set forth the truth of the scriptures over against conditional Theology, but eschatology, that is an area in which our creeds have little to say, and an area in which perhaps in the not-so-distant future the church shall have to say something officially concerning the errors that have crept up and have profound influence on the church world and which have to be refuted lest the people of God be led astray. Not only led astray into false doctrine, but the whole point of the heirs of premillennialism and postmillennialism is this, that the people of God 
will be lulled to sleep if they adopt these errors, so that they will not look any longer for the coming of Christ in the near future. There are spiritual, serious spiritual issues at stake. However that, however that may be, we turn our attention tonight to the Reformed creeds. I want to make some remarks in general, first of all, about the three of them. The Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. If somehow tonight I am successful in conveying to you some sense of gratitude for the marvelous confessions which we have as our confessional basis, the evening will not be in vain. It is my experience, and I'm sure that's the experience of every faithful minister of the gospel within our churches and outside of our churches, that the more one preaches on the Heidelberg Catechism, the more one appreciates such a precious document as we have in that confession. One of the great sorrows of my life has been that teaching in the seminary has robbed me of the opportunity to preach regularly on the Heidelberg Catechism. And I am deeply indebted to Byron Center Protestant Reformed Church for having me faithfully there every Sunday morning to preach on the Catechism. It won't be very long, and I will have been through it with them completely. And it has been a delight and a source of great joy to me. But that's not only the case with the Heidelberg Catechism, but it's the same with the Confession of Faith and the Canons of Dort. I have one regret of our family life, concerning our family life over the years. It's one thing I would do over if I had the opportunity, which I don't. And that is, in connection also with Bible reading and prayer in the family devotions, I would, with the children, once a day, read an article from either the Confession of Faith or the Canons of Dort. That, to me, would be profitable for parents and for children alike, and a very fruitful part of family devotions. If the father who leads the family in devotions would take a few minutes to read the article and give to the family a brief explanation of it, which may require just a bit of preparation on his part, which isn't all bad. The life of the family would be immeasurably enriched and an appreciation for our creeds would be sown in the hearts of our children. We never did that in our family. I regret it. And I say again, if I could do it over, I would do that. Systematically reading the Confession of Faith and then the Canons of Dort. How profitable that would be. I don't know if it has ever struck you that the three confessions which form the confessional basis of the Reformed churches, and particularly the Protestant Reformed Church, are not Dutch 
Reformed confessions. None of them is. It has been charged sometimes that we are narrow in our outlook when it comes to our confessional heritage because the confessions which we cherish and love and to which we pray God that we may remain faithful are uniquely Dutch. They're not. Not one of them is. The Confession of Faith, authored by Guido de Bre, was written originally, not in the Dutch language, but in French. And Guido de Bre was a convert to Calvinism in the lowlands, way to the south of what is now called Belgium, very near the French border, and was a part of French-speaking Walloon what they called at that time the province of Walloon, that already gives the confession of faith an international flavor. And that's partly the reason why you will find that the French confession of faith of the French Reformed churches is almost identical to our own confession of faith. The Heidelberg Catechism is not Dutch, but is German, and was written originally in German, and arose out of the Calvinistic Reformation in southern Germany, particularly in the Palatinate, just north of Switzerland. Even the canons of Dort, which were formulated by the great synod of Dortrecht in the Netherlands, was by no means uniquely and exclusively a Dutch gathering. It had present at the Synod delegates from all the Reformed churches in all the provinces of Germany and from France and from England. Those delegates from foreign countries had the right of participation in the formation of the canons themselves. The only country not represented was France, and that was only because of the fact that the King of France prevented and forbade Dr. Perius from the University of Paris to attend the Synod. He did, however, hand in written opinions concerning the concept canons and had his voice in their final decision. What an amazing thing that is. Our three confessions are not narrowly Dutch. They are, in a certain sense of the word, truly ecumenical confessions. And you must not allow anyone to teach you anything differently. In the second place, although I admit to some bias in this respect, I am personally convinced that the three forms of unity which form the confessional basis of our churches are the purest and most elaborate and most biblical statement of Calvinism that one will find in any creed, including Presbyterian 
creeds, the Westminster Confessions. I know that would spark an argument with a good Presbyterian, and the debate would probably never be resolved. But I've spent a lot of time with the Westminster Confessions, and the more I read and study our own confessions and read and study the Westminster Confessions, the more I thank God for our three forms of unity, and the more I am pleased that our churches do not stand on the basis of those confessions. Some of the reasons why that's true we will discuss next time. In the third place, and now I am already given one reason why I prefer the Reformed Confessions to the Westminster Creeds, the Reformed Confessions arose out of the life of the church. You recall that in the first lecture I gave here in class, I made a point of saying that confessions arose out of the life of the church if they were to be living, powerful confessions. Confessions were not the work of theologians isolated from the life of the church. Confessions were not hammered out in ivory towers with scholars poring over books. Confessions came out of the church itself of Christ as part of the life of the church. I don't know if you appreciate how important that really is. There was a time, and I, let me illustrate what I mean, there was a time in the years in which I was professor that all the churches were filled. There were no vacancies. And the result of it was that the professors, as well as the students, had little opportunity to preach in the churches. Professor Uxum and I, on a Friday afternoon, when we often discussed the affairs of the seminary, were talking about this fact. And we're talking about the fact that if somehow, in some way, provision was not made for the professors to preach, and to a certain extent to be involved in the life of the churches, the instruction in the seminary would suffer radically and the students would be impoverished simply because of the fact that if the professors in the seminary ever view their work as that of scholarship only, as they sit in their studies, poring over ancient volumes and collecting the dust of the centuries on their fevered brains, and withdraw from the life of the churches so that they are next to oblivious of what is going on in the daily life of the people of God and in the life of the churches as a whole. Their teaching won't any longer be worth the paper that the notes are written on. Successful instruction in the seminary means the professors, insofar as possible, have to live in and with the churches or their instruction will not be good. That's why confessions are always to be born out of the life of the church. That's one objection I have to the Westminster Confessions. That did not happen with those confessions, as we hope to notice next week. 
the Reformed confessions, it did. That doesn't mean that it's not true that one individual, for example, with the help of three other men, wrote the Confession of Faith, Guido de Bre. He did. And that doesn't mean that he didn't write it with a particular purpose in mind. But even though he was the author of the Confession, the Confession came right out of the life of the Church because the Confession was born in the fires of persecution. As the introduction to the Confession of Faith makes clear, and I think you can find it in our own uh, book on the three forms of unity. In the introduction, we read this. In 1562, a copy was sent to the Spanish king accompanied by a petition for relief from persecution in which the petitioners declared that they were ready to obey the government in all lawful things, although they would, and now I quote, offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to fire, rather than deny the truth of the word of God. Guido de Bra was the spokesman for a terribly persecuted Reformed church in the lowlands. And he spoke with, although as the representative of, those saints who were in prison and those people of God who knew the torturer's instruments of cruelty. Out of that persecution, out of a church persecuted, arose the words of the Belgic Confession. That gives a certain, certain pathos to the way in which almost every article begins. We believe and confess, and sometimes added, with all our hearts. That was said with the shadow of the scaffold falling on them. That means this confession arose out of the life of a church in persecution. Same thing is true of the, Bel of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why was the Heidelberg Catechism in, uh, authorized? Simply because of the fact that in the Palatinate, Frederick the Pious, one of the great but almost unknown heroes of the Reformation, wanted those who were committed to the Reformed faith over against Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism to be united in a common confession. And, and this even more importantly, he wanted that confession to serve as an instrument of instruction for the children. It arose out of the life of the church, out of the need for instruction, the instruction of covenant seed. And the canons of Dort, as you know, arose out of the bitter fury of controversy when the Arminians were attacking the Reformed faith. 
Notice, the three confessions arose out of persecution, out of the need for instruction of the covenant seed, and out of controversy which threatened the existence of the church. The three great reasons for writing confessions, and I can't think of any others. If those three needs are the needs that are satisfied by the confessions, you have embraced essentially the whole life of the church. And you have written confessions which arising out of the life of the church speak forcibly and powerfully to the life of the church. That to me is part of the amazing blessing that God has given to us in these three forms of unity. We remember that in our own dealings with these confessions, how much more they come to mean to us. The final remark that I have to make concerning the confessions in general is this, and I hope to have a bit more to say about that very thing after a while. All three confessions are infralapsarian. Now just a brief word or two about that term. There are two views that have prevailed in the Reformed churches since the time of Calvin concerning the decrees of God's counsel. Views are the views of infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. Calvin can probably be classified as an infralapsarian, although the distinction was not known at that time, and he makes statements that are very strongly supra. But his successor in Geneva, Theodore Beza, was beyond doubt a supralapsarian. Supralapsarianism was represented at the Synod of Dort, especially in the person of Gomaris, professor from the University of Leiden. The whole question has to do with the order of decrees, and I'm going to try to be very brief about it, but I would like to have you remember that this is the case, because even such a notable theologian as Garrett Burkauer, now deceased, got that whole question mixed up in his what I would call heretical book on divine election, and didn't seem to understand that the question between super and infralapsarianism is strictly a question of the order of the decrees of God in his counsel. More particularly, the question of superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism has to do with the question of the purpose of God in his counsel. Now, I'm aware of the fact, of course, that, and I'm talking now about Reformed infralapsarians as well as supralapsarians, say the purpose of the counsel is the glory of God. There isn't any question about that, and all are agreed on that, that all that God purposed to do in his counsel he purposed to do for the glory of his own name. Any infra will agree with that, and any supra will strongly underscore that. The question is, how does God attain that purpose? 
That's the question. And the question comes really down to this. Was it God's intent to attain that purpose in paradise the first and Adam the first? Or was it God's purpose eternally to realize the glory of his name through Christ? And although the whole idea of supra and infra may sound extraordinarily complicated to you, it finally resolves itself into this. An infralapsarian will say that God's purpose was to attain his glory through the first paradise and the first Adam, but that that purpose was... Uh, that it was necessary for that purpose to undergo change because of the fall. And that because the fall came, God's purpose is realized in Jesus Christ through election from, and these are the key words of any infra, from a fallen human race in Christ. While the superlapsarian says that God from the very outset determined to realize his glory through Jesus Christ, his own son. And in order to attain his glory through Christ, he attained his glory by elect in Christ. That is, just as soon as you say the word Christ, you say election. There is no Christ apart from the elect, just as there are no elect apart from Christ. Christ plus the elect constitute the church, the body of Christ the bride of Christ, the bride of God. In order to serve that purpose, God ordained the fall and God ordained creation. That's the difference, in brief. And I can't go into that in detail. Our confessions are infra-lapsarian, following this order. All three of them are. And I have all, often asked myself the question, why did God, through the spirit of truth, lead the church to formulate the key doctrines of soteriology and ecclesiology in terms of infralapsarianism rather than supralapsarianism? which in my mind does greater justice to the data of Scripture. Why did God do that? I don't know if there's an answer to that question, but I suspect that the closest we can come to an answer is this. That God did not choose this framework as the framework 
in which to define the doctrines of salvation and the church because this framework, and now I'm somewhat hesitant to use this expression, but I'm going to use it anyway, and I hope you will understand what I mean. This framework is the minimum of what a man has to believe to be reformed. In other words, this construction is reformed, but it is a formulation of the doctrine of salvation and the church in such a way that you have to believe at least this if you are to go under the name of reform. And the sad part of it is that 90% of the reformed church world won't even go along with this. So that it seems to me that the purpose of God is attained in this way, that God shows how the church as a whole is so hateful of the truth that it will not even agree to the minimum of what has to be believed to maintain the doctrines of sovereign grace. Won't even agree to that. And in that way, God shows the bitter antagonism of men to the truths of sovereign grace, something of which the church has always been an astonished witness. Why do the doctrines of sovereign grace attack such enmity? Why are they so viciously hated? Why, for example, to this day in the British Isles, and perhaps in America too, you can teach any heresy under the sun and remain a member in good standing in any church in the British Isles, but attack Arminianism or Arminianism in the form of the well-meant offer of the gospel, and you bring down upon your head the fury and wrath of the entire Calvinistic, quote, quote, church world in the British Isles. They don't even want the minimum. I think that's one reason why God did that. I think another reason is, perhaps, and I think that was very much in the consciousness of the men at Dort. While this is, in my, in my judgment, solidly biblical, nevertheless, there is a danger in this position to which the canons call the attention of the Reformed churches no less than twice, and perhaps even a third time, which I want to discuss if we get up to that tonight. And that is this that the possibility in this scheme of things is very strong when it comes 
to the relation of God to the fall to make God the author of sin. As a matter of fact, that happened on the Synod of Dort. Synod of Dort was by no means a united synod, you know, and part of the division was between infra and supralapsarians. This view, literally, that God was the author of sin was being taught in the University of Franeker in uh, Friesland, in the northern part of the Netherlands. And the man who was teaching that view, a man by the name of Macovius, had his case brought to the classes and then the particular synod and finally the synod of Dort where it was adjudicated. And the synod condemned that position of Macovius, who was an ardent and passionate supralapsarian. So it seems to me that the reason why God, by the spirit of truth, led the church to adopt a framework for the doctrines of grace are for those two reasons. One, this is the minimum that you have to believe to be reformed. And two, we must be warned against the error of making God the author of sin. All right, then we're going to go on to uh, these individual creeds, and I'm going to say a little bit about each one. We're not going to have nearly enough time. I can see that already. But let me give you some of the key ideas of each of these three creeds and why I consider them such marvelous documents for the church. In order to understand the confession of faith authored by Guido de Bre primarily, you must understand that a great part of Europe was under the rule of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who at the time of the Reformation was a man by the name of Charles V, a Spaniard. He ruled Spain and Germany and the lowlands and a large part of Italy. In fact, he made certain forays into Italy and made most of the Italian peninsula subject to his rule. It was customary for the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to give the lowlands a fairly large measure of independence partly because of the fact that the inhabitants of the lowlands were rather independent-minded people to begin with. And you will understand that if you have Dutch blood flowing in your veins. So he pretty much let the Netherlands rule itself, except that, of course, it had to pay its taxes. That's always the bottom line with governments. You have to pay your taxes. 
And the money that poured out of the lowlands into the coffers of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire exceeded the money from any other part of the empire because the Netherlands, or not the Netherlands, the lowlands, which comprised what is now Netherlands, Belgium, Luxem and Luxembourg, were one of the most flourishing countries in all of Europe and were such because they were the center of trade and commerce for the whole of Europe. Almost all of Europe's goods came down the Rhine River to the ports in the lowlands, particularly Rotterdam, and the Dutch Navy was sailing to all parts of the known world and rivaled the British Navy as master of the seas and brought goods, spices and linens and exotic goods from the Orient and from all parts of the world, including the New World all passed through Rotterdam and through Amsterdam and through Brussels so that the lowlands were fabulously wealthy. And so a huge amount of money poured into the coffers of the empire. So he let them alone. It was because he let them alone that the Reformation could, in its early stages, easily take root in the lowlands, too. First Lutheranism came. Very, very shortly after the Lutheran Reformation began, it came to the lowlands and immediately was accepted by the people. And Lutheranism was close to becoming the official doctrine of the lowlands, except that when Calvin began his work, especially in France, the influences of the Calvin Reformation came into the lowlands from the south through what is now Belgium and proved to be a system of theology that almost within a year supplanted Lutheranism and became the faith of the lowlands. That threatened, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, and Charles V was a staunch Roman Catholic. He resolved almost immediately to stopped the Reformation in its tracks, both in Germany and in the lowlands, and was only distracted from doing it by what is, of course, a marvelous providence of God, by the fact that the Mohammedans were knocking on the eastern door of Europe and had gotten so far as the gates of Vienna in Austria, and could only be held at bay by the armies of the emperor, so that all his attention had to be concentrated on stopping the Mohammedans, who would, if not stopped, overrun Europe and make the whole of Europe a Mohammedan enclave. His preoccupation with the uh, Mohammedans, therefore, prevented him from paying the attention to the Reformation he would have liked to pay to it. He soon wearied of the affairs of the empire and appointed his son Philip II as 
uh, ruler, and he retired to a monastery where he put on a hair shirt and spent the last years of his life in penance, which he should have done too if it did his soul any good, which it didn't, of course. Philip II was far more cruel than Charles V and was determined to stamp out Calvinism. The first two martyrs in the lowlands were burned at the stake in 1523. Henry Voos and John Esch, two martyrs for the faith. And that began a persecution in the Netherlands that according to Grotius, one of Netherlands politicians, resulted in the murder of over 100,000 inhabitants of the lowlands. More than had been put to death by the whole Roman Empire from the time of Nero, who killed Paul, to the time of Constantine the Great, who came to the throne in 311. The Netherlands suffered terribly. Now, there's something interesting about that. It's an interesting thing that the Dutch never make very much of their martyrs. If you would travel to the Netherlands and you would search for monuments to the martyrs, you would be hard-pressed to find any. Nobody knows where they are. I'm not even sure that they are marked. I've never been able to find any, not one monument to any martyr. You cross the English Channel and go to the British Isles, the story is entirely different, especially in Scotland, although the same is true in England and to a lesser extent in Ireland. Ireland, of course, for the most part, other than Northern Ireland, is Roman Catholic. The British and the Scotch tend to make a great deal of their martyrs. Wherever you turn, there are memorials to martyrs. Graves of martyrs are marked. Stories of martyrs are inscribed in stone. Churches are dedicated to martyrs. And so important are martyrs to the Scotch and to the English that even worship services are held at the tombs of martyrs on appropriate days, days that celebrate the anniversary of the death of a martyr or the birth of a martyr or some such thing. And you can barely turn around in the British Isles without bumping into some obelisk or gravestone or plaque commemorating the death of a martyr. That strikes me. We don't, Dutchmen don't do that. Reminds me of a story, true story. We had someone from Scotland staying at our house a few years ago and this particular individual said to me and my wife that he and his wife would like to visit the graves of Reverend Hootsma and Reverend Ophoff. 
To my embarrassment, I didn't even know what cemetery they were buried in. And I told him that. I said, I, I don't know where the, where the cemeteries are. That, I don't know in what cemeteries they were buried. And if I knew the cemetery, I wouldn't have the faintest idea where. They thought that was dreadful, absolutely dreadful, that we didn't even know where they were. You mean you have never been to the grave of Reverend Hoopsman? No, never been there. I only get to my mother's grave once a year, and that's to take my dad. There's something wrong about that. I mean, not about our attitude towards martyrs. It isn't as if we are indifferent to the blood that was shed in defense of the faith. But it isn't the sort of thing on which you build your faith. And indeed, if you have any acquaintance with the church situation in Scotland, it's almost, I mean, the church at its best is almost a religion of garnishing the graves of the prophets. Well, I think the Dutch are right. While honoring the faithfulness of those saints who gave their life courageously in defense of the truth, the important thing with the Dutch has been, and the Reformed, the truth for which they stood. And there is no better way to commemorate their courage and bravery than to hold fast to that same truth. There is a certain element of pure outward show in holding a worship service in a cemetery where some martyr was buried 400 years ago, or paying a visit to the grass market in Edmonton where the scaffold was set up on which the Covenanters were hanged. I think the Dutch are right. They cherish the fact that the Netherlands Confession was born out of persecution. And the Confession means so much to them because that Confession says this. Even though we must give our lives for the cause of the truth of the gospel, this is what we believe by the grace of Almighty God. And nothing will budge us from this. Though knives cut our tongues out of our mouths and gags keep us from speaking, and we are slowly roasted over the fires of those who would destroy us. We will confess this as our faith. That's what makes this confession, in my judgment, so extraordinarily powerful. I cannot read the confession of faith and quote it from the pulpit without hearing that confession made by those who suffered for the cause of the gospel, whose names are for the most part unknown, whose graves are forgotten, known to God alone, awaiting the resurrection.
but whose faith we cherish today. Now concerning the confession of faith, in the first place, it's the one confession that treats the doctrines of the scriptures according to the six loci of dogmatics. And there we are back again there. It is therefore a complete statement of the reformed faith in systematic form following the order of the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of the last things. That gives it a certain power as well. It is therefore, from a certain point of view, the most complete of any of our confessions with regard to the truth. In the second place, it has some unique features about it, which I found, find extraordinarily interesting and helpful. First of all, it's the one confession that sets forth very clearly and concisely a doctrine of Scripture. And that doctrine of Scripture, which is set forth in the Confession of Faith, rivals that of the Westminster Confession, not only, but has in it all the essentials of the doctrine of Scripture, which the Church needs throughout all time to defend the holy, infallibly inspired character of Holy Writ. Its article on the authority of Scripture is one of the most eloquent articles concerning the authority of Scripture that one will find anywhere. In the third place, it treats extensively such doctrines as the doctrine of the Trinity, to which it devotes a lengthy article, the doctrine of the divinity and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, including a special article on his office of mediator and an extensive article on providence and on the doctrine of the church. And to my mind, it shines as a bright light in Articles 27, 28, and 29, where it talks about the doctrine of the church. There are some phrases, some, some, some expressions in those articles which are memorable. Let me just mention a few. In Article 28, where it's uh, 27, where it's talking about the Catholic Church. It says, And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though she sometimes, for a while, appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as during the perilous reign of Ahab. The Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread 
and dispersed over the whole world and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. That is eloquent language. If you go to Article 28 in talking about the doctrine of the church, the confession is at pains to impress upon us the solemn obligation that we have before God to join ourselves to the true church. And then it adds this striking phrase, even though the edict of princes be against it. In other words, you must join yourself to the true church, though it involves persecution and disobedience to the commands of men, because the command of Christ supersedes. That binds upon the believer an obligation from which he cannot escape. There are other eloquent passages in the Confession of Faith that I frequently read simply for their edifying and instructive content. Article 24, which deals with good works and the reward of grace. Therefore, we do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are beholden to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he that worketh in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to what is written, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are our unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards our good works. And then this, in a memorable line, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. I challenge anyone to say it any better than that. That's the reward of grace. That's what it is. And then it goes on to say, Though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, for we do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus, then, we would always be in doubt, tossed, to and fro without any certainty. God knows that's true if we rely on ourselves. Tossed to and fro without any certainty and our poor conscience is continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. That speaks to the heart. And by the way, just within the last week, 
or maybe week and a half, the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has gone officially on record as approving the doctrine of justification by faith and works. The president of Trinity Foundation, John Robbins by name, has written publicly, that's the end of the OPC. It has become, and I'm quoting, the false church. The argument they make is this. Luther taught justification by faith alone. Luther was wrong. Calvin corrected him and taught justification by faith and works. I tell you, that's not so. What do they mean? They mean this. Justification is by a living faith. A living faith is a faith that produces works. Therefore, justification is by faith and works. Then I read this. Then I read this. Am I going to search my life to find my best works, my very best? Write them down on a pad and carry them to the judgment seat of Christ and plead before the judgment seat of Christ that I be declared righteous and worthy of heaven on the basis of those works. Those works, the best. What are they saying? Do they want that? If I cannot plead the righteousness of Christ is my only hope and the foundation of all my salvation, then the yawning mouth of hell opens to receive me there. I have nothing. This is the church of Machen, J. Gresham Machen. Interestingly enough, established a very short time after the Protestant Reformed Churches. It has now officially committed itself to justification by faith and works. The framework hypothesis is an explanation of creation is gaining ground in the Reformed Churches. And the argument is that it's an non-confessional matter and that the confessions not speaking to the doctrine of creation leave room for diverse views and other doctrines. I call your attention to this statement in Article 12 in the Confession of Faith and I challenge anyone here to deny that the doctrine of creation in six ordinary days is not confessional. It, it is confessional. Article 12. We believe that the Father, by the Word, 
that is by his Son, hath created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures, as it seemed good unto him. Then notice this line. Giving unto every creature, that is, by his Son, through the word that he spoke, giving unto every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its creator. Try to fit evolutionism into that statement once. You just can't do it. The confession won't let you. And so I could go on. The confession of faith is a remarkable document. I can't say anything much about the Heidelberg Catechism and the canons. Oh, I wanted to talk about the canons so bad, but it's out of the question. Let us close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.